Hello, and welcome to the Spirit, Power, and Grace podcast, a podcast where we explore where the Holy Spirit is at work in the world today and why that matters in your life. My name is Andrew Thompson, and it's great to have you along. Today, I'm sitting down with the Reverend Joseph Bias. Joseph is a minister of the gospel, he is a worship minister, and he is a very talented church musician. I am also honored to call him both colleague and friend. Joseph, it's great to have you today. Oh, it's great to be here. Thank you. (laughs) So I know this is a very busy season of the year. We are recording in the middle of December, Um, and so for all worship ministers, this is, it's always going to be a busy season, but it's particularly a busy season because here in our church, we have a Christmas concert in the middle of December that you are uh, the leader for. Yeah. Yeah. We, we've been doing it now for 29 years. This will be my 29th year and uh, pretty excited about it this year. That's a big accomplishment in and of itself. And it means that we have a huge anniversary just on the horizon, don't we? For next year. (laughs) Yes, we do. (laughs) I was at a Christmas party last night where uh, some of your colleagues that you sometimes play and sing and perform with were, were leading uh, uh, entertainment portion of the, of the evening. And they, they made comment about the fact that you were not with them because you were practicing with a full orchestra <laughs> yes. back in the in the sanctuary of our church. And so yeah. it was an excused absence. Thank you. So, yeah. Yes, I agree there. So we might get a chance to talk a little bit about that at the end of our conversation uh, today. Mm-hmm. But what I'd really like to do is to just start and to talk a little bit about your background uh, and your life. And I, I know that you are, uh, you're from Georgia originally. Born in Savannah, Georgia. Yeah. And uh, lived there until I graduated from high school. And after high school, I went to college at Morehouse College in Atlanta. And uh, there's a lot to connect with that. Uh, but uh, uh, then after graduate, I mean, after after graduating from Morehouse, I attended and graduated from the University of Rochester Eastman School of Music. Got my master's there and, and then later did uh, some uh, post uh, master's degree work at uh, uh, Meadowbrook School of Music where Robert Shaw was the director of that. I don't know if you know the name Robert Shaw, but he was uh, the conductor of the Atlanta symphony for many years. He was also associate conductor with the Cleveland Orchestra for a while and was uh, very much involved with uh, his own choral group called the, uh, the Robert Shaw Chorale. Okay. So, yeah. The, you know, I've, as a pastor myself, I, I'm not a musician, but I, I've been um, really blessed to be able to work with and spend time around a lot of very talented church musicians mm. uh, over the over the past couple of decades. And of that group of people, you are in the front rank. When, when you were growing up, um, how did you how did you start to figure out that that God had given you a special gifting uh, for the ministry of music? I don't know that I actually figured it out at, at, at any particular point. I do know that I always wanted to be involved in music and I always loved singing. Uh, I, I loved playing. I started mimicking my sister playing piano when I was five years old. She she was taking piano lessons. I was not. I was just being a brat. <laughs> so she would play her uh her exercises and whatnot, I'd be listening. And when she got up from the piano, I'd sit down and I'd play what she just played. Had no clue, you know, but, um, uh, it was my mother, I think was the real, uh, catalyst for me pursuing music professionally because she would almost daily say, you know, no matter what you're doing in life, you need to have music. You need to be doing music. You need to learn music. 
And I took that to heart, but it was also already in me to, to want to do that. And so I, I first started with piano and then woodwind instruments when I was in high school and college, beginning of college. But it was in college that I actually started started singing more uh, on a professional level, mm. or at least pursuing vocal music on a professional level. So yeah. when you studied at Morehouse, was that, were you studying voice or were you studying instrumental music? Or? Yeah, I started out uh, with piano and because everybody does, you know, an organ and whatnot. And that was also a part of the curriculum. So I, I had to do those things. But in one of my piano lessons, my uh, teacher who was Wendell Whalem, and some of your audience may remember or know that name, but he was chairman of the Department of Music there. He was also the director of the Morehouse College Glee Club, and uh, we toured all around the country for and other parts of the world from time to time. But anyway, um, uh, he, you know, told me to get up from the piano. I was working on some Bach inventions. He said, get up, get up, get up. And he had me sing a couple of arpeggios because he had heard me singing in the, in the glee club. And, uh, after I sang through them, I, th- I must've sang by maybe two and a half octaves or whatever. And, uh, he just wrote out a change of, a uh, change of a uh, major card and <laughs> to let to him and says, take this <laughs> to the registrar's office. You're changing your major. <laughs> <laughs> Whether you want to or so not. Whether you want to or not. So that's when I started majoring in vocal music and uh, majoring in music at, at all because I was actually a math major when I went to college. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So um, we changed over in my sophomore year to music. And so I had a math minor, music major, and then I added English literature as a second minor. Mm. You know, so there we go. What role in your in your childhood, uh, what role did faith play? Was your family active in the church? Oh, yeah. Yeah. We lived in church, I think. My dad was a deacon. He was also a trustee in our church. We were Baptists back in those days. And uh, uh, and mom, uh, mom's dad was uh, the loudest singer in the church that they attended. He had that reputation. He would sit on the back row and he would sing above and louder than anybody else. And mom and her sisters, two sisters, they formed a little trio called the Stokes Sisters. And they sang for the Baptist conventions over the summer Mm. (laughs) at different times. And they sang at different churches around uh, in Marietta, you know, and in, and in Savannah when they would travel down to Savannah. But um, in fact, that's where my dad met my mom, you know, but um, on my dad's side, my dad was a pastor and uh, pastored a church uh, called the church of God and saints of Christ. They were in Fort Valley, Georgia, later Atlanta and then later Savannah. But, um, my grandmother was the choir director. She was the choir stir, as okay. they were called back in that day. So um, I had all kinds of all those influences going on with me in the process. How far back do your family's roots go in Georgia? You've told me a story about your grandfather on your mother's side one time that I just found remarkable. Yeah, my grandfather was uh, was in Fort Valley. And in, for those of you know about the Trail of Tears, yes. Um, our family, and we haven't researched this out, you know, long while, but the place where they live was where the Trail of Tears began of the migration of Native Americans that ended up here in Oklahoma. Mm. And so it is very possible that uh, my grandfather uh, and some of his ancestors were a part of that. Wow. Yeah. Because my grandmother, for sure, she was, she was, uh, she was part Native American and she looked 
really <laughs> like more Native American than she did black. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And and you your grandfather on your mother's side was a prominent tailor in there. Yet. He was. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Like I said, he he owned the first and only black owned tailor business in town. My, my grandmother was also a seamstress. Okay. So he did, uh, he, he made suits, he made coats, he made umbrellas, he made, well, he had a shop there at his house, but he also had his, his major business was downtown. Yeah. Marietta. Yeah. And, um, and that, and, and what, I mean, can you tell a little bit of that story that you told me about what, what happened on the night that he and your grandmother got married? Oh yeah, on on the night of their wedding, um, they had just moved into the house, and that night the clan came and they burned the house down. With they didn't, they escaped uh, they, the 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 fire, but they burned across uh, uh, and uh, in front of the house, and the idea was to intimidate them to leave to get out and. Um, but my grandfather just decided they were going to rebuild, you know, and they did. They rebuilt uh, a second home on the same property. Uh, as my grandmother used to say, it was not as grand as the first one, mm. but it was it was still a very nice, very nice home. But they had been in that house for less than a month and the clan burned it down when they weren't home. Wow. And they come home to find find it up in flames. And uh, so that really had a took a toll on him emotionally. I know, as my grandmother used to say, that he, he kind of lost his his enthusiasm for life in general. And he decided to just just do whatever was absolutely necessary. No more. So they they sold that property and they bought a property in the what was then the more typical neighborhood for black folks to live in. And um, it was still a nice property. It was two acres of land. But he built a house, as my grandmother said, it looked like a lean-to shack on the outside, but we made it a palace on the inside, mm. <laughs> you know. So uh, his skill at, and he and he was the, the architect who designed the house too. You know, he didn't, he wasn't a, he wasn't a trained architect, but he designed the, 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 the way the house was. And it was enough for the clan to want to burn it down. Well, they didn't burn down the third one because now he was living where he should have lived according to them. But, uh, so his, his know. business was, was he, uh, was he tailoring for, um, the white community yes. as well as the black community? Yes, yeah. Mostly for the white community. Okay. Uh, he would do work uh, gratis, you know, for some of the black folks and people in the neighborhood. You know, and my grandmother did too. They would do seamstress work and whatnot. Uh, but but his major business was working for uh, successful businessmen, you know, and mo- most of whom were black at that time. And, and I mean, white, white in the in Marietta. Yeah. And so is the is what the Klan was doing. Were they trying to send a message for someone that they felt like was um, successful in an area of business that he, quote unquote, didn't have any, you know. Business well, in? yeah. Yeah. The, the mindset of the evil, you know, is corrupted. And yeah. so uh, we we believe that the reason why they did it was out of jealousy and envy. Uh, he was successful. He was black, and he wasn't supposed to be. You yeah. know, he was supposed to be under their thumb, and uh, uh, because they weren't succeeding, they didn't want him to succeed. You know, uh, and it's just, which is, you know, it was the it was the reality of life back then for, for many people. So, uh, but my grandmother and my grandfather overcame 
in in their own way. They kept going and they instilled in my mom and in her two sisters a will to achieve and to go move on and press on despite setbacks, despite the fact that other people will hate you and do evil. Uh, you can't let that define who you are. You know, you have to go ahead and make accomplishments on your own. And so they passed that on to us as their kids, you know, and uh, well, still clearly do, your, your yeah. mother literally passed that story on to you. Oh, yeah. It, unless yeah. it was someone else in the family that told it to you. No, it was my mom. Yeah. Yeah. And my grandmother was alive for a long time. So she corroborated all that went on. Yeah. She was she was never I mean, she, I won't say she was bitter about it, but she was definitely um, it, it was ang it was the, the anger stayed for many years. Yeah. And why not? I mean, everything that they had was, was burned up and they had to start all over again twice. You know, that's uh, it's not an easy thing to do. No, you know? yeah. no. Um, now, the interesting thing about that, though, despite the fact that they burned down their house twice, they never did burn down the business. They didn't touch the business downtown. That is very interesting. And I think it was because they understood the necessity of what he was doing. He was serving a need and they didn't want to mess with that. There were probably some people. We 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 really thought about that. You know, there probably some people thinking, no, we need that. We need him to be tailoring for us. You know, but we're not going to let him live the way he he wants to. You know, we're going to relegate him to where we want him to be. You know? That is remarkable. Yeah. yeah. And, and what did that story? As you heard that story growing up, what did that what what did that communicate to you, Joseph? Determination, <laughs> uh, uh, t uh, a determination to not let it affect my life, to not let it stop me, to not let it make me something that I wasn't, you know, even even as a youngster, you know, and I would hear the story. And I remember telling my dad something once um, he, we were he, he was a, a jack of all trades, among other things. But uh, he primarily worked for American Oil Company for a while uh, as a maintenance man. And but on the side, he he did uh, he was a mechanic, auto mechanic, and he was an electrician. He was a mason. He, he would do help build houses. In fact, he built my grandmother's house <clears throat> in the back of our property when I was growing up. But one day we were in the garage and he was working on a car and um, a, a white patron who had left his car to be worked on came up and this was a young kid. He was probably just in his late teens or something. And uh, he kept referring to my dad as Caleb, which is my dad's first name. But my dad was referring to him as sir. And when the guy left, it was, it was the first time that I kind of noticed that difference in the fact that the, this guy was, this was a young guy. My dad was a mature man. Uh, and we were taught to respect our elders back in those days, you know. And so when the guy left, I said, Dad, why do you let him call you by your first name? Why doesn't he call you Mr. Bias? Was He said, son, said, it's just the way things are right now. And that might, won't always be this way. But right now, if you're going to get along in this world, that's what you have to do. And I remember saying to my dad, I was in the seventh grade. I remember saying to my dad, dad, I'll never do it. If they don't respect me, I'm not going to respect them. <laughs> my dad said, okay, son, it's your life. You know, <laughs> that's remarkable. That was it. Yeah. 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 So you were, um, you were in high school in the 1960s during yes. the civil rights era. Yeah. And um, I would love if you would, would be willing, I would love for you to, to share the story about the evening that you found yourself at 
the home uh, along with your sister and your mom and dad. You found yourself at the home of some friends when um, Dr. King came in with some leaders of the civil rights movement. Yeah, yeah. We were at the home of uh, Raleigh Bryant, who was a prominent uh, insurance agent in, uh, he had his own insurance company there in Savannah. But um, uh, it was the occasion of the uh, celebration of the Emancipation Proclamation. And every year in January, um, the NAACP would bring in uh featured speaker and there'd be a celebration at the municipal auditorium and almost all of the black community would come and, you know, and attend this. And this particular occasion, Dr. King uh, was the most prominent uh, civil rights leader at the time. So he came in, he came to Savannah, he came back twice after that, but this was the first time he came. And um, uh, the Bryants had a reception at their house for him following his his uh, speaking for the uh, celebration. And my mom and dad were invited to come to that reception because they were close friends of the Bryant's family. And my mom decided that my sister and I should go rather than her uh, because she thought it would be more beneficial for us to get to meet Dr. King and Naturally, she was always forward looking about things like that. Um, so my sister and I went with my dad and uh, we were the only young people there, you know, our age. But when Dr. King came and he saw us, he uh, he took us into the kitchen and set us down at the kitchen table. Everybody else was out in the rest of the house. Uh, and uh, he sat there and he just talked with us for quite a while, you know, almost, almost an hour. And he just shared with us his vision, you know, for the future. And he, in, he inspired us, you know, to, to carry on the mantle after he passed. He said, you know, I'm not going to be around forever, but your generation will have to carry on after, after I'm gone. And, uh, he, he uh, encouraged both of us to, uh, uh, well, at that time, my sister was already a freshman at Fisk University. I was in high school and um, he encouraged me to go to Morehouse uh, and attend college and whatnot. And uh, as it turned out, I did. <laughs> but um, it was it was just a, it was a remarkable time uh, in our history because as a as a youngster, I I knew that he was uh, an important leader, but I had no idea the profound impact and the breadth of his influence over not just black folks, but over the whole world. The whole world. Yeah, yeah. really. Yeah. And so to sit uh, and talk with him, you know, for as long as we did and ask questions and for him to ask us questions and inspire us, it was it was pretty remarkable. So yeah. you and your sister had a had a a one-on-one -on -one audience with yes. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. <laughs> yes. on a kitchen table <laughs> in 1963. Yes. And you yeah. talked to him for the better part of an hour yes. about yeah. the future of yeah. racial reconciliation in yeah. America, essentially. Yeah. yeah. And I remember, I remember him saying things like, and this is why when I hear people talk about him today, and especially those who try to attach him to political movements more than anything else back then he was he was a minister you know his first calling was that of a christian pastor mm -hmm. and minister and preacher and he was a great orator and he had taken on the mantle of being uh, a, 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 a political leader in the sense of his social uh, awareness and, and and leadership in the civil rights movement but at the heart of it all 
you know, he was, he was an ambassador for Christ. Yeah. You know, so everything I'll, about his views on race were driven out of the gospel. Yeah, exactly. I mean, exactly. it wasn't, yeah. It, it, yeah, did it have political implications? Of course it did. Yeah. Of course it did. Because yeah. it's about people and it's about society. Exactly. But yeah. it's, this is about Jesus. This, this is, is about how, Jesus. Exactly. And, and he emphasized that to us. And I do remember, I, I don't remember every word that he said. I wish I had a recording and I could tell you all about it. I remember the bigger picture of how inspired I was, you know, by having to meet him. But uh, I remember that he really emphasized the importance of love. Mm. That was a big deal with him. He said, you're not going to change the world through hate, but you will change it through love, you know. And you've got to first love yourself, but you also got to love those that hate you. You know, you've got to pray for them. I mean, these were the kind of things that he was inspiring us to do. Don't let them define who you are. Don't let their hatred of you make you hate them. You love in spite of them, you know. So that was just just some of the things that I remember from that time. And how how has that, I mean, in the years that followed, what 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 impact did that make? I mean, you said you, you mentioned that it had an impact on you going to Morehouse. Yeah, well, because I saw, well, he was he was very articulate, you know, it was very impressive. You you can't sit down with Martin Luther King and not be moved. <laughs> this guy had, you know, he's profound, he's bigger than life, you know. Uh, he wasn't big in stature, but my goodness, his uh, his sense of determination and his his commitment to the calling that was on his life and everything, you couldn't escape that. That was just really there. But um, he was such an articulate speaker, you know, that impressed me. And his his passion for the civil rights movement and his passion for equality and his passion for blacks and whites and people of all generations living and working together in peace and harmony, you know, just struck a chord with me. You know, I, I, I wanted that, too. You know, I remember at the March on Washington, which I got to be at with my dad. And uh, uh, that was that was just um, I don't know how to describe it. I sometimes get emotional when I think about it, because it was the first time that I remember sitting down in the company of people who were not of my race and a, a whole lot of other races and even religions. And we were all sitting there around the reflecting pool between the Washington Monument and the Lincoln Memorial. And we were closest to the Lincoln Memorial. So we were pretty much just yards away from where he was actually speaking. And um, we were sitting there on the ground. We all had pallets or something laid out on the ground, on the grass. And we were sharing our food with other people. Mm. We were talking with other people. We were interacting as though it was this was just what we do every day. <laughs> it wasn't. It was brand new. It was just amazing to get down and talk with someone of another race who had been in your mind sort of like the enemy, you know. And these were just kind, caring, gentle people just like us, you know. And and my dad being the gregarious guy that he was, you know, uh, he made everybody feel welcome, you know, into whatever situation they were in. But I remember we, even that day we were as we would talk with people about about the movement, about just that event we were at with so many thousands of people all together, how different the world was for that few moments that day, yeah. you know, and then when Dr. King got up to speak, uh, it was just, I mean, we, we heard Marian Anderson sing, we heard Mahalia Jackson sing, we heard uh, uh, a whole lot of other leaders, you know, speak. But when Dr. King got up to speak, the place was like hushed 
until he made a, a major point and then it erupted in this explosion of applause and cheers and whatnot. And then it would get hushedly quiet again, you know, as he would speak. <laughs> It's amazing. And then when we all stood up and started singing, we shall overcome together, holding hands with people all around. That was just awesomely powerful. That's one of the greatest yeah. moments in American history. I think were, it was. You were present yeah. there for it. Yeah. 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 And, and at the way that you describe it, that, that vision of racial reconciliation, it was being enacted on that day. It was being, it was real. It was reality that day. Yeah. And nobody, and nobody seemed to be disgruntled. There wasn't any, um, I didn't see anybody demonstrating with anger or any such thing. People were holding up placards because the the, the primary thing that was driving that movement was the uh, uh, the voter registration act. You know, giving blacks the right to vote in all these places where we had not had where we had been disenfranchised. So that was one of the key things. But it was it was overall it was also about equal access. You know, at the time and uh, it was. Because, you know, the whole, whole movement began uh, with uh, the, the in North Carolina with the students sitting down at Walgreens, you know, Woolworths, to, Woolworths, yeah. Yeah. Walgreens, Woolworths uh, uh, to protest uh, at the lunch counter. Yeah. You yeah. Know? So that that was that was also a part of that equal access, the desire for equal access and equal representation by our, our leaders or, yeah. uh, in Congress. Yeah. <laughs> And so a few years after that, in 1968, uh, tragically, uh, while he's in Memphis, Tennessee, mm. uh, Dr. King is assassinated. Yeah. Um, and you... That night, uh, I was singing with the uh, Atlanta Symphony Chamber Chorus in concert in Atlanta and Atlanta Symphony Orchestra. And Robert Shaw was conducting. And it was at intermission that we got the news that he had been assassinated and there were two black people in the, in the choir at that time, uh, in the chamber singers and myself and a young lady from Spelman college, uh, who was, I take that back. She was from Morris Brown college. Yeah. And, uh, the two of us, Robert, Robert Shaw brought us into his, his uh, dressing room and he said, um, he told us he was the one who gave us the news that Dr. King had been assassinated. And it was it was a shock. You know, immediately you're just numb for the first few moments. You you, you can't believe that that has happened. But then he said, um, I'm going to leave this up to you. Should we go on with this concert or should we just announce this and then cancel the rest of the concert? And we both said, no, no, let's go on with the concert. Because the next thing we were going to be singing was the Stravinsky setting of the Psalms, Stravinsky mm. Symphony of Psalms. Mm. And I said, nothing could be more appropriate as a memorial mm. to him. Had to have been difficult to sing. The reality hit of what had happened began to hit as we walked out and he made the announcement to the audience and he said, we have lost a great leader tonight. And so the rest of this concert will be dedicated to his memory. And I am requesting that there be no applause at the end, that there be no demonstrations of any kind. I'm going to ask you to leave in silence when we are done. And that is exactly what happened. We sang, sang beautifully. The orchestra played beautifully. And at the end, you had the cutoff, the final note ended, 
No one said a word. There was absolute silence in the house. The orchestra got up and left in silence, and the people began to leave in silence. It was, it was visceral. My you know? goodness. Yeah. And I will never forget it. Mm. Never forget it. Yeah. So uh, a few days after that uh, announcement in that concert, uh, the funeral was held uh, first at Ebenezer Baptist, and then we had the public funeral uh, at the campus of Morehouse College, which was his alma mater. And uh, that was where I got to sing uh, Balm and Gilead as a part of that concert. In fact, it's a, you can actually pull it up on YouTube nowadays. Can you really? Yeah. My, uh, my goddaughter's husband found it and sent it, sent me the link, but, um, uh, sang Bob and Gilead with the Glee Club, Dr. Whalum was conducting. And then we also did, uh, were you there when that first trumpet sounds, uh, both of those for the funeral that day. It was amazing too, because, um, we were on the, the, the grand, the great mall there between what was then the Atlanta university, City Administrative Building and Graves Hall, which was the signature building for Morehouse College back in the day when it was Morehouse College. And the area between that was just the grassy uh, mall area. And it was full of thousands of people and um, uh, just a sea of of humanity and uh, they brought his casket up drawn by a mule drawn cart you know which was pretty pretty amazing um and then there were several people major major people that you would know who sang for the funeral and spoke at the funeral and whatnot uh, but um it was it was quite a day yeah and when, at what point did you find out that you were going to get to be a part of that, that you were going to get to sing as a part of the funeral? Well, uh, just a few days after, after the announcement of his death, uh, Coretta Scott King, Dr. King's wife, uh, was a close friend of, of, uh, Wendell Whalum, uh, at Morehouse. And she requested that the Glee Club sang and she wanted me to sing Bomb and Gilead. So it was at her request. And so you and sang that, that as a solo. Yeah. Yeah, but it, it was back up, backed up with, I mean, the Glee Club was singing also on it, you know, but I sang the solo parts of it. Yeah. 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 What a, what a signal honor. What a, just a remarkable oh. honor to be able to be a part of that and just incredible. witness to the yeah. legacy of his life. Yeah. Yeah. I was, I was very honored to be asked to do it. Uh, but um, at the same time, it was, it was overwhelming and it was so massive you know, to a kid from Savannah, Georgia, <laughs> uh, who had just, uh, we had experienced Dr. I mean, we had experienced, uh, John F. Kennedy's assassination and Robert Kennedy's assassination. And then Dr. King's assassination. It was a turbulent time. It was a turbulent time. Yeah. Turbulent time. So all of that emotion was a part of that event as well. Yeah. Yeah. Joseph, what role does the Holy Spirit play in your life? Oh, <laughs> you know, yeah, the Holy Spirit's been with me even before I knew he was. <laughs> I can tell you that from fact. Um, today, I think, had I not known the Lord early on as a child, when I strayed away from that, uh, teaching with my parents and whatnot, um, 
I would have probably been lost completely because uh, it was an era with all of those shocks to the system and emotion and everything. It wouldn't would be very easy to just check out, you know, of life because there was nothing to hope for. I mean, all your leaders were being killed. I mean, people were uh, hate and anger was running rampant here and there. You know, all kinds of things were going on. And yet there was a there was a, a kernel of something that I had experienced that I couldn't get away from, mm-hmm. you know. In nineteen in nineteen seventy seven, um, I was uh, pretty much a secularist, <laughs> to put it mildly, um, and. A friend of mine who was working with me musically, I was traveling the country and uh, playing uh, in a band that accompanied the Vogues. I don't know if any, uh, well, the older people in your audience will remember the Vogues. They were the, the first boy band, so to speak. Uh, they were three tuxedoed guys. And um, when the original Vogues retired, the guy who owned the name, who at that time owned Quaker State Oil uh, in Pennsylvania, uh, he uh, created a group out of three guys from Opryland. They were called the Vogues because that was he owned the name, so he could assign it to anybody. But they did only the work, the the uh, uh, original works that the Vogues did. And we traveled around and we did showrooms all around the country as the Vogues, and I was their backup band, uh, well, the keyboard player for the band. <laughs> And um, in 1977, um, the guy who was their producer, music producer, um, was, was had become a friend of mine. And uh, I was at his house one day and he had just recorded um, a song called Feed My Sheep with uh, a guy named Ken Helser from over North Carolina. And he wanted me to hear it. And I knew he, I should have known he had something going on, you know, more than just wanting me to hear this song, you know. But back then, for those of you who remember reel to reel tapes, we had two big reels, you know. And uh, he he turned on the reel to reel, and the song started, and he left me down in the basement, sitting on the shag yellow carpet. <laughs> and he went upstairs, and I'm listening to this song called "Feed My Sheep," and. The song goes something like, well, it goes like this. Is um, For the first time this morning, I began to realize what the Lord must have felt as he looked into Peter's eyes. He said, Peter, do you love me? Well, Lord, you know I do. And with love beyond what's known to men, he said, Peter, I'm leaving this with you. And then it goes into the chorus of the song. It goes, oh, feed my sheep, dear Peter. Oh, feed my lambs. Oh, feed my sheep, dear Peter. And please remember who I am. So I'm listening to the song. And all of a sudden, I didn't know it was the Holy Spirit at the time. I just felt this warmth inside of me. It said, Joseph, I love you. And it was the voice of the Lord I am absolutely certain of it. 
And I had never heard that before. I had never, as much as I knew my parents loved me and, and you know, and that sort of thing, I had never felt or heard a message of love for me that was that real and that unquestionable. And so by the time Alan came back downstairs, I was a pool of tears on the floor. <laughs> and uh, I really should back up with the story just slightly if we got time. That day, I had I had come to I had come to Alan and Karen's house because I'd been substitute teaching in the area, and it was at a school that I had not been to before. So I was kind of going through neighborhoods that I wasn't familiar with, but I found their street that they lived on. So I followed that street and I found their house, and I went to their house to get directions how to get out of that neighborhood back to uh, back to my own place. And they invited me in. It was the middle of the afternoon. They invited me in, and they were having a husband and wife Bible study in their bedroom. So they invited me back to the bedroom, and they got all these Bibles and concordances open. We didn't have tech stuff. We didn't have computers. We just had real printed stuff. Anyway, so they got Bibles open all over the bed, and uh, and I was feeling very uncomfortable <laughs> in that setting because, like I said, I was a very much a secularist. And so... Um, we left the bedroom, went into the kitchen, and I felt much better there. And I said to them, I said, Alan, I don't know what it is, but there's just a peace in your home, which I, I can't get over it. And he said, oh, that's Jesus. And I said, no, 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 I don't mean that. I said, there's just something. I feel like there's a there's a presence here that is just so peaceful, you know, and so good. He said, that's Jesus. <laughs> and I said, no, I, I, I'm not mean, I don't mean church stuff. I mean, it's, it's just something I can't, I can't quite... I, didn't, I don't know what it is, but I, I just really, oh, it's just really something, you know. And he said, it's Jesus. <laughs> I'm a little slow, all right? <laughs> so he said, come downstairs. And that's when he took me downstairs, turned on the, the, the reel-to-reel, played the song. He goes back upstairs, and when he comes back down, I'm just, you know, totally weeping and crying. And I said, Alan, I don't know what you got, but if it's Jesus... I need Jesus. I want Jesus. And we prayed a prayer. And that day was my beginning of life. Oh, my goodness. April 5th, 1977. Praise the Lord. Yeah. So, yeah, the Holy Spirit. Yeah, he was he was there right at the beginning and has been with me ever since. Yeah. There are so much I want to ask you right now. Um, we are up against a hard stop here in just a minute. And so I think the um, uh, the the joy of this for me is going to be that I got to get you back in here for a part two at some point. So we'll let you get on the other side of the Christmas concert for that. How about That'd be that? good. Yeah. So, um, this episode is going to come up uh, or is going to go up on uh, Thursday, uh, December the 7th. And if you are in uh, the Tulsa area, uh, we want to invite you to join us downtown. Uh, on South Boulder Avenue at First Methodist Church uh, at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. or 6 p.m. for our 29th annual Christmas concert uh, where um, Reverend Joseph Bias will be the conductor. Um, and, um, and I get the honor of being able to witness all three of those uh, Christmas yeah. concerts. And I, yeah. I'll, I'll say this to close, Joseph, one of the real joys for me in ministering alongside you mm-hmm. is that um, usually in on Sunday morning worship, I will walk up to preach right after an anthem. Yeah. And um, you have the anointing of the spirit 
all over you. And, mm-hmm. and I get to see that there are certain Sundays. Um, and, uh, you know, we don't know why the spirit moves, how he will. He, yeah. he blows like the wind. But yeah. there will be cer- certain Sundays where the anointing, the covering over you uh, will be so strong. Mm-hmm. It's like you're glowing. Mm. And I can feel it as I'm approaching you, as I'm walking up the steps of the chancel. And um, I just consider it um, just an enormous blessing um, and an honor and a joy uh, to get to labor alongside you for the sake of the kingdom of God. Well, can I say equally that I am so inspired and so blessed and encouraged by your ministry here. It's just, it's outstanding. And obviously, you know, the church loves you. So, (laughs) but, but God's got his hand on your life and on your ministry. And we are, we are all the more enriched because you're here. Oh, thank thank you you for that. that. Thank you for that. We will, we will sit down again soon because there are other parts of your story that, that I would like for us to be able to uh, to dig into a little bit. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's about all the time that we have today on Spirit, Power, and Grace. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google, or your podcast provider of choice. Our audio engineer is Miguel Figueredo. The podcast is edited by Kyle Westfall. We would love for you to help us spread the word and continue to grow our listener base. So please like, share, and subscribe. I want to say a special thanks to my guest, Joseph Bias. Until next time, this is Andrew Thompson for Spirit, Power, and Grace.